Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles with me to John chapter 11. There's a man named Louis Zamperini who was an Olympic runner in the 1930s. And uh, it was a hope that uh, that he might be the one who would break uh, what seemed an unbreakable uh, barrier in track and field, uh, the four-minute mile. Uh, and in 1938, it looked uh, like uh, Louis may be the one uh, to break that four-minute mile. And then uh, in, in 1939, World War II began. And uh, when the U.S. Uh, became involved uh, in uh, the war, Louis served in the Pacific Theater, uh, and in May of 1943, his uh, plane w- was shot down uh, over the, the Pacific. Uh, and uh, the, out of uh, 11 crewmen who were on uh, the airplane, uh, eight of them were immediately killed. Uh, and uh, Louis and two other uh, airmen uh, climbed onto a life raft, uh, and uh, they remained there uh, adrift uh, in the Pacific Ocean for 47 days. They drifted 2,000 miles aboard that raft, constantly uh, battling uh, thirst, constantly battling hunger. Uh, One of uh, his uh, fellow crewmen died after 33 days on the raft. Uh, Towards the the end of their uh, 2,000-mile drifting, uh, they they came uh, under the Japanese uh, airspace, so to speak. And so Japanese planes began to to come down and and strafe them and shoot at them, but because they were in shark-infested waters, uh, they would jump out of the boat when the planes came in to shoot at them, Uh, and then as soon as the planes had passed, they jumped right back into the boat uh, because there was a danger both in the water and in the boat. Eventually, they landed on uh, the Marshall Islands where the the Japanese uh, took them prisoner, uh, and uh, then... Zamperini spent uh, the remainder of World War II at a prisoner camp. So World War II ended August 1945 in terms of conflict with the Japanese. So he was there in that POW camp for close to two years. And during that time, he was severely mistreated and beaten and abused. And he didn't come into his time at that camp in the best of health after being adrift at sea for 47 days. Now, during uh, his time there, the Japanese found out that he was a bit of a celebrity, right? Famous uh, American runner, now a POW. And so uh, he got special attention from his captors uh, in the worst possible way. There's one particular uh, man at the the camp known uh, by the prisoners as the bird, and he was just absolutely vicious uh, to Zamperini. On one occasion, uh, he hit uh, Zamperini with the, the, the... buckle of his belt multiple times in the head. Uh, Zamperini lost consciousness and he said he was deaf in his left ear for several weeks. And it was at that point in time, he, he said that he recalls spending hour after hour in prayer to God, begging to be delivered, but begging to be rescued out of his circumstances. You and I may have never spent any time in a Japanese POW camp, but maybe we, uh, we have some common ground in, in crying out to God in that way. 
right? And when we are in certain circumstances that are very trying and difficult, the greatest thing that we want is relief, deliverance. Uh, And when we are crying out to God, maybe in uh, tearful prayers, we're crying out to God and sometimes he delays responding to us, just as he did for, for Louis Zamperini. Just as he did here, as we've been studying in John 11, right? Jesus waited two more days before going down to Bethany. But in those moments when God delays, there's a question or a doubt that is very easy to creep into our hearts and minds, right? We begin to ask ourselves, does God really care about me? You really care about my situation right now. Is he aware of my suffering? And if he is aware, why is he not acting right here and right now? And being uncertain about God's love, care, and concern for us as an individual is indeed one of the most haunting and trying of experiences. But in... In this passage that we're going to to study this morning, we're going to see the heart of Christ on display. We're we're going to see that the heart of God. And remember, as we see the heart of Christ on display in this passage, in a very unique and profound way, uh, what we are getting to see is what God is like. That's the the whole point and the whole premise of John's gospel. Going back to John chapter 1, verse 18, that the Son is the one who explains who God is to us. Uh, Jesus, as God the Son, is the one who reveals the triune God. We want to know what God the Father is like. We look to His Son. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is, speaking of Christ, the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So as we look to Jesus in this passage, we are going to see what God is like. And this passage is going to help us answer that very, very important question that we have wrestled with. Does God care? As we come to to John chapter 11, we we are uh, within probably the last two months of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Uh, In uh, in John chapter 10, after his showdown with the religious leaders, uh, they they were seeking to to arrest and kill him. So Jesus had to to leave Jerusalem, and he went up to uh, the other side of the Jordan River on the east side. uh, And he's kind of in no man's land in between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. Uh, and he's, he's biding his time as a wanted man. Uh, he's not welcome in Galilee anymore, and he's not welcome down uh, in Jerusalem. And so he's teaching and, and ministering there on the other side of the Jordan River. And while he's there, uh, th- there is news that comes to him from a little village uh, of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, that a man named Lazarus is sick. And we're not told all of the details uh, about how uh, Lazarus uh, came into such a close relationship with Jesus. But the the news that comes is Jesus, the one whom you love, is sick. So Jesus gets this news 
Uh, and he was very close with Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And Jesus waited two additional days. Is that because he loved them, he waited two more days before acting, before going down to Bethany. And in verse 17, after announcing his intention to his disciples of, hey, I'm going to go down to Bethany and I'm going to raise Lazarus. Lazarus is dead, but I'm going there for a purpose. Verse 17, he arrives in Bethany, and, and Martha, one of the sisters, comes out and, and greets him. Uh, and again, with expressing polite disappointment, she says, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And uh, over the, the course of the, the conversation with uh, Martha, uh, Jesus uh, labored and spoke with her about moving her hope uh, away from a, a distant resurrection. She says, I know that my brother will be raised on the last day. And in verse 25, if you look there with me, this was Jesus' response. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. It's the message of the gospel right there. And we all, need to look to Jesus in faith. And if we do that, we will never die. We will, we will have a, a physical death. We will die, and yet we will still live. And then Jesus presses home the issue with Martha, Martha at the end of verse 26. He says, do you believe this? Verse 27 is a wonderful profession of faith. Martha responds, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. That's what we see, the response of faith on Martha's part. And then what we're going to study this morning, verses 28 to to 37. If you begin reading with me in, in verse 28. And when she had said this, she went away. And called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. And then the Jews, who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her thinking that she was going to the tomb to cry there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her crying, the Jews who came with her also crying, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? Let's pause and and just pray. Father, we come to your word this morning with a sincere desire to know you. With a sincere desire 
to hear you speak to us through the the written word that you have given to us. Father, we, we ask for your spirit to open our hearts, to open our minds, to grow our faith, to help us to see and behold your son for all that he is. And Lord, help us to to see ourselves in his glorious light. Help us to see how we are called to respond in faith to these words in John 11. And draw us near to you, we ask in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, as we, as we study this passage this morning, we're, we're going to see Martha and Mary and other mourners shedding an abundance of, of tears over Lazarus. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to the pain of his people uh, and how he demonstrates care and concern for these sisters who were so faithful to him. And what we're going to see here is the the humanity of Jesus uh, put on display again uh, in a very unique way in all of the pages of Scripture. Uh, We're going to see Jesus uh, respond with such intense uh, emotion. That's going to be very instructive for us. And how he responds is going to demonstrate how he cared not only for Martha and Mary and Lazarus, but how he still cares for all of those who belong to him. But how can we be certain of God's care and concern for us? I would say that we can, we can rest assured of God's care and concern for us by, by the two emotions that Jesus demonstrates here in this passage. Uh, The first emotion that we see uh, is in verses 28 to 33. We see that Jesus hates what destroys us. And verses 28 through 32, which we just read, really set the stage for verse 33. What we we saw was uh, Martha just made her profession of faith, and and she departs and returns to her sister, and and she comes and speaks to her sister uh, secretly or or privately. And she does that because uh, of this crowd of of people, and she's she's wanting to try and arrange for some type of a a conversation between Mary and Jesus uh, that's not going to be overheard by everybody. So she comes and, uh, and she uses the language of a disciple. Right, she comes and says to her sister, the teacher, right, the, the teacher is here and he would like to speak to you. And when Mary hears that, she, she immediately rises and she, and she departs from her house where she was uh, receiving all of uh, these visitors uh, from Jerusalem who were coming to, to comfort and console uh, her and her sister. Uh, and she, she leaves them and, and she goes outside of the village uh, to see Jesus to speak with him Uh, and the trouble is that uh, all of those uh, visitors who were with her in her house mourning and weeping with her uh, they think uh, that she is going out not to speak with Jesus but that she's going out to the tomb of Lazarus uh, to weep there Uh, and so they arise with her and they follow her outside of the village and when Mary comes to Jesus outside of the town she says the exact same thing that her sister said Right? If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. There are a couple of minor differences to note. When Mary comes to Jesus, what does she do immediately? 
she falls down. And Martha is not recorded that, that Martha did that. We kind of see a little bit more emotion uh, on the part of Mary than, than from Martha. I don't say that by way to, to elevate one or uh, lower the other, but just by way of observation. And I think Mary's words should probably be read as a, a declaration of faith. Uh, faith in Jesus that, oh, he could have prevented this. Something could have been done. It's also interesting to note that every time we see Mary in Scripture, she is at the feet of Jesus. Luke chapter 10, uh, when Jesus is uh, in uh, their house, uh, Martha is busy serving, but where is Mary? At his feet, listening, hearing. Here in John 11, she comes to him and bows down. And then again in John chapter 12, She's going to come and she's going to anoint Jesus' feet with perfume. But all of this uh, sets the, the, the stage for verse 33. Verse 33 then informs us of Jesus' response to all that, that is uh, before him. And if you can uh, imagine with me, uh, if we were outside of the village there, we would see uh, Jesus uh, and Mary probably running up to him and immediately falling down. And she's weeping. And then there would be a long procession of people following after her. And verse 33 says that they are also weeping. At this point, it would be good to to draw some some contrast with our modern American funerals. Typically, when when we attend a funeral, what's the noise level? Very quiet. Right? And, and uh, it's almost a, a sign of respect uh, to, to be uh, quiet and, and reverential uh, to, to the family and out of respect for the one who has passed away. And that, that's very much a, a cultural thing. In, in Jewish culture, a sign of respect uh, would be to come and weep and wail loudly. Uh, if you came and you were quiet, that was not respectful. In Jewish culture, that was disrespectful. The expectation would, would be that you would come and, and follow along. And uh, even uh, poor Jewish families, when, when a loved one died, it was expected that they would hire uh, in the, the funeral procession at least two flute players and one professional wailing woman. Now, you would hire a woman to come and weep and wail. And that, that's the, the Greek word that is used here in verse 33. Now, the idea is not quiet uh, sobbing. The idea is a, a very loud, emotional cry. That's how Mary runs up to Jesus, weeping and wailing. And then this crowd of people is coming behind her. They're not coming quietly. They are weeping and wailing. Voices crying out, flutes playing, maybe beating their chest in grief. And when Jesus sees this scene and he takes it all in, the end of verse 33 says that he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. There's two parts to this response, and we can look at each of them in turn. The first portion, he says, he was deeply moved in spirit. And English translations actually do a very a poor job of, of translating the verb here, even the, the brand new uh, legacy standard bible that I'm, I'm i'm teaching from this morning 
They, they translate uh, the Greek word uh, as deeply moved, uh, but the, the word actually means uh, it, it, it's a very loud, uh, strong uh, expression of anger. It means literally to, to snort with rage. Now, in uh, secular Greek literature, it's used to describe uh, angry uh, horses. Uh, elsewhere in uh, the, the New Testament, uh, it expresses a, a deep anger or a stern rebuke. It's used in Matthew chapter 9, verse 30. It says that, And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, there's our word, to see that no one knows about this. Also in Mark chapter 1, verse 43. And he sternly warned him, and immediately sent him away. Mark 14, 5, it's translated as, as scolding. Uh, and, and again, the, the idea uh, that, we, that we should take away here. Uh, is that when Jesus takes in this whole scene, there is an anger that he feels in his inner man, in his spirit. He sees all of this and it provokes him to anger. Second part of the statement in verse 33 says, And he was troubled. The idea is being in turmoil. The same word is used in John chapter 5, verse 3, speaking of the the waters of Bethesda. It's used in Acts chapter 17, verse 8, speaking of a crowd that's uh, being stirred up to a riot. Uh, it's used in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. This is how uh, King Herod felt when he heard about the, the birth of the Messiah. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. But this might raise a question here, right? Why, why would Jesus look at this scene... And why would he feel a, a very deep and profound anger? There's a couple of different uh, points of view concerning this, regarding the, the object of Jesus' indignation here. And some have said that he is uh, angry with Satan. Like, okay, that, that's maybe theologically true and accurate, but I don't necessarily think that we can see that directly from the text before us, Right? Like, that's true, uh, but we wouldn't be pulling that out of the text. We would be reading that into the text. If you think about what is before Jesus right here and right now, think he is, he is beholding sin, sickness, and death. And it is upsetting to him. Right? Not that Lazarus' uh, sickness and death is a result of Lazarus' sin, but any and all death is ultimately a result of Sin. Sin has come into this world uh, and it has led to death. And I think as Jesus beholds all of this, he is righteously angry at sin and death as it is presented before him at this very moment. And and again, remember uh, that Jesus is the exact representation of God. And sometimes we fall into this uh, error that our culture often uh, proclaims, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger, and Jesus, the God of the, the, God of the New Testament, I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, let the record show there's not two separate gods in the Testament. There's one triune God, uh, all of time and space. Uh, but that Jesus is compassionate and kind, and we, we create this division uh, and as if Jesus uh, is not going to have the same emotions as God the Father. 
Exodus uh, 34, verses 6 and 7 in the Old Testament. This is how the Lord describes himself, God's autobiography. As uh, Moses had asked God to reveal himself, uh, Yahweh passes by, and this is what is proclaimed. Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So, did you catch that? What's one of the, the fundamental characteristics of God, of Yahweh? He is slow to anger. He, he will eventually be angry. And this same Yahweh is Jesus. I think as Jesus is beholding all of this before him, he has a, a righteous indignation. Uh, and a part of that, I think, is also directed towards uh, this unbelieving grief that was coming out to him. There, there is a, a weeping and a wailing that expresses uh, a, a grief that's rooted in faith, and then there's a weeping and a wailing that expresses uh, unbelief. Uh, there's uh, different types of grief. D.A. Carson puts it this way, Profound grief at such bereavement is natural enough, but grief that degenerates to despair that pours out its loss as if there were no resurrection is an implicit denial of that resurrection. Right? The, the grief of believers should be inherently different from the grief of unbelievers. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who do not have hope. So something is seen here that is uh, something that we don't often think about. Right? That Jesus has a, a righteous anger towards unbelief. Right? Again, that's not the only thing that's happening, but uh, th- there is unbelief present here. Again, to quote D.A. Carson, he says, the one, speaking of Jesus, the one who always does what pleases his father is indignant when faced with attitudes that are not governed by the truths the father has revealed. If sin, illness, and death, uh, all devastating features of this fallen world, excite his wrath, it is hard to see how unbelief is excluded. So unbelief is is a part of that. It's not the whole, but it's a portion. But but coming back to what I'm trying to to say here, the overall point, right? Because I've said that, that the emotions that Jesus demonstrates here are an assurance of his care and concern for us. So how does uh, Jesus' anger here at sin and death communicate love for us? Well, here's uh, what I would uh, say. That that this uh, emotion uh, communicates his love. Let me think of it this way, or let me illustrate with this. Uh, On on May 3rd, 1980, there was a young girl uh, named uh, Carrie Leitner. And she was walking uh, with a friend uh, to a carnival that was being held at a local church. And unbeknownst uh, to to Carrie and her friend, there was a drunk driver coming up behind them. Uh, And this man who was barreling down uh, the street uh, had already been arrested uh, and charged with a DUI on four separate occasions. And he hit Carrie from behind knocking her out of her shoes and sending her flying. 
And then he fled from that scene. He was later caught and charged with her death. But how do you think Carrie's parents felt toward this sin of drunk driving? How do you think they they felt towards this sin that had destroyed their daughter? Their life had been irreparably damaged by this driver who had recklessly taken their daughter from them. How do you think that made them feel? And and from, from that time forward, Candace Leitner, Carrie's mother, worked tirelessly to change the drunk driving laws in California and uh, in the rest of the United States. You might uh, be familiar with the organization that she started, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Mad. Again, only a foolish parent would rejoice in those things that would destroy their children. Right? A wise and loving parent is only going to have righteous anger towards something that would uh, destroy and harm their, their kid. So, so what should we expect Jesus' attitude to be towards sin and death? Are those things that are going to do extreme harm to his people. It is sin that brought the curse of sickness and death into this world. And Jesus has a righteous anger and animosity towards it. And Jesus hates the sins that would destroy his people. He takes no pleasure or delight in our sins or our unbelief. He hates those things that would destroy us. Anything that would harm us. And this is the first emotion that demonstrates Christ's care and concern for us. He hates those things that would destroy us. But then secondly, another emotion in verses 34 and 35. Jesus weeps when we weep. We read these verses earlier, but they're worth reading again. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So even though Jesus is is deeply, deeply troubled and he is righteously angry in spirit, he has still come to Bethany, not just to grow angry, but to do what? He's coming on a mission. He's coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he asks, he says, well, where has Lazarus been laid? Uh, and the, the they, in verse 34, is not identified for us, but it's, uh, we think, safe to assume that it's the, the two sisters uh, who respond to him. And they, they say, Jesus, just come with us and, and see the tomb where he is laid. And so now this, this massive procession uh, that has come out to, to, to see Jesus, uh, Mary and then all of the, the mourners behind him, uh, or behind her, uh, now uh, there, there's a, a, this procession with uh, Martha and Mary and Jesus at the front is going to be uh, going towards uh, this tomb uh, where Lazarus is, is buried. Uh, and they're going to be walking to the, the tomb, and they're going to arrive there in verse 38. But on the way to the tomb, well, we have verse 35. Right? And, and I'm not always a fan of how uh, the verses in the New Testament were chopped up. That was a, something that was done later. But I have to say I appreciate the fact that uh, when, when verses were made through John's gospel, that there was an emphasis that was placed uh, in, in making this verse as short as it is. 
That's, that's an intentional decision, right? To, to draw our attention. This is the, uh, the shortest verse in our English Bibles. Two words in English, three words in the Greek. And this one single, very short verse, we, we see a demonstration of, of Christ, his, his compassion, his sympathy, his love, his sadness, his grief. Charles Spurgeon says, There is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the utmost attentive consideration. The word for, for wept here is, is different from uh, the, the word that was used back in verse 33. And that was a very loud uh, wailing and crying out. This is the idea of shedding tears. The idea is Jesus just quietly burst into tears. He sees everything that is before him as he is on his way to Lazarus's tomb. And think about this. Jesus knows what's going to happen when he gets there. Right? Everybody else has no idea. But Jesus knows exactly what he has come to do and what will take place. Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. But Jesus still, in, in, in seeing everything around him, all the sin, all the sickness, death, unbelief, the absence of, of hope in those whom he loves, he sees this and he immediately feels what they feel. He sympathizes with them. In the book of Hebrews, it, chapter 4, it talks about uh, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is what we see here. He is weeping with those who weep. He is grieving with his friends. The compassion of Jesus is on display here. And here's... Something else to, to think about that you probably not uh, contemplated. That Jesus felt compassion, not as we feel compassion. Say, what? But Hebrews chapter 4 just said he sympathizes with our weaknesses. That is true. But, but you and I, when we feel compassion, our compassion is tainted by our sinful hearts. But Jesus, in his sinless humanity, has a perfect compassion in his book gentle and lowly which i'd highly recommend author dane ortland gives this example to clarify this reality he says i remember walking the streets of bangalore india a few years ago i had just finished preaching at a church in town and was waiting for my ride to arrive and immediately outside the church grounds was an older man apparently homeless sitting in a large cardboard box his clothes were tattered and dirty. He was missing several teeth. And what was immediately most distressing was his hands. Most of his fingers were, were partially... Uh, I'll tone it down a little bit because I know we have children's ears. They, they were not there. And it was clear that they hadn't been damaged by an injury, but they'd kind of been nibbled away over time because he, this man was a leper. And he's, he writes, What happened in my heart in that moment? My fallen, prone-to-wander heart. Compassion. A little, anyway. 
It was tepid compassion. The fall has ruined me, all of me, including my emotions. Fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. Why was my heart so cool toward this miserable gentleman? Because I am a sinner. What then must it mean for a sinless man with fully functioning emotions to lay eyes on that leper? Sin restrained my emotions, he writes. My emotions of compassion. What would unrestrained emotions of compassion be like? Right? What, would it, what would it be like for, uh, to have perfect compassion uh, for a friend who died? Perfect sympathy uh, for friends who lost a, a brother? What would that look like? Well, we see it here in John 11. Where the, where the perfect compassion of Jesus cannot help but weep with the people that he is with, even though he knows he's about to, to go and uh, redeem and solve the very thing that they are weeping over. But his perfect compassion leads him to just burst into tears. And this, this scene might might sound strange to us because in this scene we see Jesus both profoundly angry and profoundly grieved. How can this be? Now, well, I would submit to you that those those emotions uh, should go together more often than they than they do. If you if you keep your finger here and turn back with me to Luke chapter 19. We see these same two emotions. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. After Jesus has uh, triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, he departs. This is another scene. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city... He cried over it. And that's, the, that's not just the shedding of tears. That's the weeping and wailing. He cried over it, saying, If you knew in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in one, in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. We have to, to understand. Jesus is, is pronouncing judgment. And at the same time, what is he doing? He's weeping and wailing over the sin of Jerusalem. This is the, the character of God, the heart of God towards sin. If you go back even further, turn with me to to Genesis chapter 6. And this chapter establishing the the sinfulness of humanity humanity leading up to the flood. Verse 5 says, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. But when God beholds our sin, what is his first response here? Grief. Sadness. And yet 
The righteousness of God also demands, verse 7, and Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I have regret that I have made them. The compassion and the righteous anger of God go hand in hand. And uh, as we we're speaking about Jesus having perfect emotions, right? Uh, we, we've seen what, what perfect compassion looks like in this passage. We also see what perfect anger looks like. Because perfect anger, and really all anger, anger is a moral judgment. Why do we grow angry? Because we see something, and what assessment do we make in our, in our hearts and minds? Something is not right. And so uh, when, we're, when we're speaking uh, about uh, perfect emotions... It would be a contradiction of Jesus' character if he uh, were to behold sin and death and not get angry. If he is morally perfect, and he is, that necessitates a perfection and a balance between his anger and his compassion. And to quote uh, the author of Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland again, he says, Perhaps we feel that to, to the degree we emphasize Christ's compassion, we neglect his anger. And to the degree we emphasize his anger, we neglect his compassion. But what we must see is that the two rise and fall together. A compassionless Christ could never have gotten angry at the injustices all around him, even those flowing from the religious elite. No, compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. And he gives this example. It is the father who loves his daughter most, whose anger rises most fiercely if she is mistreated. So we see here in this passage that Jesus feels perfectly, profoundly. And his emotions here give us comfort. They give us assurance that he cares for us because he cannot look at injustice that his people face without growing righteously angry. With not without weeping as we weep. And what Jesus felt with and for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, he feels now for each and every one of his people. His perfect love is upon all those who trust in him. And he has loved you too much not to sympathize with your weaknesses. He has loved you too much not to care about you. His heart understands and sympathizes with yours in all of your trials, sufferings, and distress. What do we read in Psalm 56 earlier? What has God done with your tears? Talk to me. He has a bottle where he has saved each and every one of your tears because they are meaningful to him. And he weeps with us. You are here this morning with a broken heart. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. You are here this morning in distress. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. You are here this morning wondering, wrestling with that question. Does God care? The answer is a loud and resonant yes. And he doesn't just care a little bit. He cares perfectly. 
perfectly. Perfect compassion. Perfect sympathy. Perfect love and concern for you wherever you are. Whatever you are walking through. And we see that here. In this passage. And we need to come to the conclusion, therefore, that Jesus loves us. Why should we come to that conclusion? We'll look at verse 36. That long line of, of Jews who were following after Lazarus and Mary. Oh, not Lazarus isn't there yet. So Mary and Martha and Jesus. They're, they're following after them. And they see Jesus weeping on the way to the tomb. And what conclusion do they come to? To see how he loved him. And that's an accurate conclusion. See how he loved Lazarus. And then they ask, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Right? Again, it's very much along the lines of the, the, what the, the two sisters said. If only he had been here, this wouldn't have happened. But here's what we need to know. When we are wrestling with that question, does God care for us? We can answer yes. Because the love of Christ is put on display for us here. His perfect anger. His perfect compassion lead him to hate what destroys us and it leads him to weep when we weep. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, where a young boy named Diggory is sent by Aslan the lion to go and retrieve a piece of fruit and then return it to Aslan. And in the background of the story, Diggory's mother was desperately sick and he wanted so badly to help his mother. And he thought that maybe he could somehow get that fruit and take it to his mother and that would help to, to heal her. But Aslan says, bring the fruit back to, to Aslan. So Aslan is, is ready to, to commission him and, and send him away. And he asks, are you ready? Yet, yeah, and this is what, what happens in the book. Yes, said Diggory. And he had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could make bargains with. But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes that he had had and how they were all dying away. And a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? And up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. And now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders... Great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. And they were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. 
Diggory realized that he was so deeply grieved and concerned about his mother. But in seeing, gazing upon the the face of the lion, he suddenly realized, he loves my mom even more than I do. And whenever we begin to, to wonder, does God really care? Is He really concerned about me? We can rest assured that He cares even more than we realize. And we need to, we need to remember that. To, to recite that. Because it's very easy for circumstances to give us uh, amnesia. Right? We focus so much on this one little thing that we lose sight. Christ. But in this passage, we get to face, to see, to behold the tears of Christ. His perfect compassion, his weeping for and with those whom he loves. And so we should not ever question if he cares for us in our suffering and affliction. We should always remember. If we're wrestling with that, Does he care? The answer is he cares even more than we could ever know or realize. Amen.